G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Episode 17 of Series 7 of This Week in Startups Australia. Scaling is the hardest task facing a startup entrepreneur. It's harder than getting started, harder than getting to an MVP, harder than getting investment. Scaling is hard. But there are any number of startups who have scaled successfully, including several which have already been on Twista, such as Canva, Envato, Catapult, and Airtasker. What can we learn from their successes in scaling? That's our theme for Series 7. Now, in this episode... Our final news special for Series 7, we take a look at the politics and policy of venture capital funding, what it means to get visas for global talent, what happens when the government makes your business illegal for export, and then we learn all about this year's Spark Festival. All of that, plus our most expert panel on this Twista news special. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build a foundation for a successful career. To find out more about entrepreneurship at UTS and the UTS Startups Program, go to startups.uts.edu.au. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Are you a small business looking to streamline costs on shipping and postage? Simplify and save with SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. Visit them online at pitneybowes.com slash au slash twista. Here we are on the Twisted News Special. Joining us for this news special is founder and CEO of Gelix Ventures, Andrea Gardner. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you very much for having me. And joining Andrea, we're welcoming back to Twista, Spark Festival Director Maxine Sharon. Maxine, welcome. Great to be here again, Mark. Okay, topic one. We're going to dive right in. Now, I sat in a meeting not very long ago with some very high-priced lawyers. We are talking about setting up a VC fund, as one does. And as we were walking through the options of the kinds of funds, it became clear that what's called the ESVCLP, that's the Early Stage Venture Capital Limited Partnership, for those of you who have never heard all of that concatenation of letters before, that apparently that particular fund has become so hemmed in by rulings from Oz Industry, which is the, I guess, bureaucratic body, that it has been for lawyers, it's basically said that these funds are ruinous to the startups that they're intended to help. They're, they're basically essentially useless. So, Andrea, what do you reckon about this? You know, we have a specific vehicle that was set up to help early stage startups, but apparently it isn't doing that because the way it's being implemented is in a very unhelpful way. How can we fix that? I think I think there are two sides to this particular coin. The ESVCLP structure, it's a legal, a particular legal structure that was set up to um, 
encourage and incentivize investment into very early stage startups, high risk investment asset class. And, but it's also critical for the economic future of Australia that we provide that financial fuel for those early companies. After all, they're providing all the jobs, you know, they're creating all the new jobs. Um, now, the, it's very significant, the tax breaks, the, there's basically um, don't take advice from your professional advisors here, but essentially it provides a GST and income tax exemption for investors. And there's lawyers and people setting up funds um, that are pretty anxious that um, one of the criteria that's evaluated is whether or not it's focused on early stage and what does early stage mean. And I think there's a feeling that it's becoming increasingly restricted and that that is counter to the original intention of the legislation of the government, which didn't um, include a kind of a, an age criteria and I think they're or, now or saying even it has an to income criteria years. right no I don't think there was an income criteria either um, but it appears that you know although it's not formal that anything over seven years or has revenue um, of more than three million for the previous two years isn't being considered not early stage and they <sighs> which is questions. weird because three million is not a lot of revenue for a startup. No, well, what it's doing is it's really, I suppose it's just limiting, it's it's trying to limit it to seriously early stage. And the thing is, Series A, and it, yeah. this could easily be a Series A investment class, is still really, really high risk. Yeah. And the concern is that it that they're making it increasingly difficult to in, for ESV CLPs to invest in what is still a really high risk asset, you know, the, yeah. at, at Series A. Um and I think, you know, there's a, there, there are a lot of fund managers and lawyers that are becoming increasingly concerned about that. Interestingly, last Thursday at the AIC conference, um, I sat next to the chair of the committee that <laughs> approves ESV CLP That was opportune. Yeah, and I asked him about, you know, a little bit of clarification. And there was quite a strong view that these tax breaks are so significant that they really do need to be applied to the investments in the highest risk startups, which are very, very early stage. He kind of... Because because the tasks, task benefits are so big, you have to be so restrictive. So they, they really feel like this is such a big win that they need to really make the pool of available investments that small. I don't think that's it. I think they want to target it so that it's incentivizing investments in that in very early stage, maybe pre-revenue, mm -hmm. early, very early revenue uh, companies. And they're the highest risk um, startups to invest in. But, but there's a bit of a mismatch though, isn't there? Because you have angel investors doing investments at that end. And, you know, funds talk about doing early stage investments. They talk about it all the time, but there are a few, very few that apply um, a, a significant percentage of their capital. Well, it's bandwidth, right? Because really, if you have yeah. tons of tiny little investments, the GPs don't have time to sort of care and feed all of those investments at that level, right? That's right. And also I think there is a move towards the fund's um, particularly the more established funds writing bigger checks at slightly later, less slightly less risky stage of investment. Um, and maybe that's where that push is coming from as they move up their 
maybe they want to keep that sort of the benefits of the VCLP structure. But it is it is important, and it is important that we, um, you know, that there is, you know, effective incentivization for investing at that high risk early stage. It's yeah, I mean, this is it's a it's a tough one because you're right. You want people to be investing at early stage, but we do have where we didn't have, and I know this is part of what you're going to be doing at Spark Festival this year. So we're educating both the companies and the angel investors a lot better than we did. So can we expect that the angel investment, the angel investors don't get these kinds of tax credits, right? Or do, oh, well, or they, do they? They're not from the ESVCLP is a particular venture yeah. capital fund structure. Yeah. Angel investors will get the ESIC early stage um, innovation company tax breaks. But that is a very restrictive um, regime. And I think once they're three years old, they don't no longer apply the, it's in, becoming increasingly common for very early stage, you know, startups to raise their first round in C note, convertible notes, or safe notes, and those early stage tax breaks do not apply until there's a conversion to an equity event. So that's that's a really poorly thought out structure, mm. and yeah. So that, that, that needs to be fixed. All right. So, so Maxine, we'll, we'll talk more about Spark later, but let's. this is a really good time to talk about the part of the Spark Festival that's going to be talking about investment. So could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. And um, yes, as always, there would be lots of content on the program about investment at all stages. But specifically, we're starting a, um, a new series that's all about putting the VCs and the what I call almost scale-ups together and helping those scale-ups in particular about what not to do, basically, because with a few horror stories, obviously, <laughs> of people who've gone through the process, hopefully a couple of times, but also that feedback from the VC community as well. Yeah. And the idea of this event really is just to, you know, slowly, slowly lift the standard in Australia of the kind of people who are um, applying for VC. So, yeah, and, and we hope it, it'll be the first in a series, hopefully, of ongoing. <laughs> of a long, gentle... Yes, a long, process. gentle growth, yes. <laughs> All right, topic two. On the brighter side of things, it looks like it's just become a little bit easier to get good talent into this country from overseas. And it is not that we lack for native good talent because... We have to think about this as Australia is being a net importer of capital investment and a net importer of human capital, that they kind of go hand in hand. And so we need to think about how we keep a pipeline open for both of those. So we now have what's called the Global Talent Employer Sponsored Scheme, or GTES. God, we are thick with the acronyms mm. on this episode. <laughs> Very much so. So a business with over $4 million in turnover <laughs> – so they're not in the EVCLP. EVCLP. Yeah. Um, they can get up to 20 folks a year as long as these folks are on salaries that are above 180K, which is not a particularly high salary for a company that's getting global quality talent, right? Atlassian and Canva have both signed up for a five-year go under this, along with Kohl's, Rio Tinto, Cochlear, uh, you know, a Cochlear is a technology company. Rio Tinto, who knows? Okay, does this mean anything for smaller startups? Does it help them in the race to recruit and find world-class talent? Or is it just a story about the big companies getting the resources to get bigger? Um, the way I see it, what it could mean for smaller startups is that at least 
the larger startups are drawing their talent from outside Australia. So maybe it gives them a bit more of a go with the local at talent. the local talent, yeah. right? So an opportunity there. And also there's just that flow on effect that people come to Australia, they yeah. stay here, yeah. they Their partners come and their partners are talented Absolutely. or their kids. And it just or... builds that, that ecosystem. And also I think it's part of, I think something we haven't really talked about that much is that it, everything goes both ways, that yeah. we bring people to Australia, we send Australians overseas and there's, we're part of this global ecosystem and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing right? Not something to be afraid of that when people go away, that's a terrible thing. Or that when people are coming here to take our jobs, that's a terrible thing as well. Andrew, what do you think? I mean, you, you must have startups who are also trying to recruit from overseas, right? Yes, variably. I, I have to say, I do think that this is anything that is going to make it easier to bring talent here, particularly dev talent, um, is welcome. Mm. I suppose my cons- and and you know companies like Canva and Atlassian that are growing at a rate of knots and creating a huge number of jobs for Australia and helping our economy um, significantly, it helps them, and they really are struggling and they're recruiting thousands of new people between them a year. Yeah. So and some of these do you know some of these do need to be from overseas because we don't have that uh, the talent here. I think the other good thing that it does is it helps build that um, pool of developer talent mm. or and other talent, I suppose, but I suppose the focus is on developer talent. In Australia, once you've lived here, it's pretty good. Yeah. I mm. think a significant number of them will want to continue living well, here. Well, it's also if you bring someone talented in, everyone they're working with is going to learn exactly. from them, right? That's the other thing. Even if they go back to wherever they came from, as we put it, Right, they will still leave a residue of the fact that they have worked with people and they've helped those people be better people. Absolutely. Like the other day, I was talking to someone from, um, let's just call it a major technology company, who is planning to open a Sydney office and hire 100 software engineers. And at first, I was like, "That's really, really exciting." But then my other half, who you know, sits amongst all the startups who are trying to hire software engineers themselves on their humble salaries. Uh, I thought, oh, is it is this a good or a bad thing? But ultimately, I think it's a net positive because this company is going to bring so much expertise into the Australian ecosystem, basically. So, yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, I think on that, it's um, important to remember that in Silicon Valley, most I think sixty four percent of the startups were started by immigrants or yes, refugees. Exactly. Yes, and. That just goes to show to the go, the the impact of these people can be enormously positive. Yeah. So and it means we get, as you say, all that importing all yeah. that expertise that hopefully will some of it will rub off. Yeah, it, it does. It does, and the connections that are made. Like I'm, I don't know how well known the story is, but basically how Cameron Adams from Canva met Melon Cliff was an introduction from Lars, who mm. Cameron had worked with on Google, Google Wave, right? <laughs> Yes. That's what happened. I, th- I think he may have told that story when, because uh, we had Cam on the show in like series three back, or yeah. something. Yeah, exactly. When Canva was still not, it was not a unicorn yet. I th- just one of the thing, one thing I wanted to say is that I think it's great. And we've talked about the um, kind of almost secondary positive benefits of this and the fact that it's really is aimed at helping those companies at that scalding point where they're scaling and where they really, really need 
to recruit people rap- and large numbers of people quickly. And that probably is the most important point to help in terms of the immigration. And hopefully it will do that. Um, I'm not sure how directly it helps in the earlier stage startups, mm. but then a lot of them won't have 100 and because a lot of them won't have 180k. But then, then again, for the good developers, often you need about that. But I suppose the other thing is how is it going to be implemented? Like, are they going to approve lots, or is it are they going to only approve? Yeah, is it going to be a slow every hundredth walk? one? You know, so I suppose in theory it's great. Let's see how the practical side of it turns out. All right. Topic three on talent going overseas. So this is a story that was in the AFR last week. And so we've had Mike Bersuk, who's the CEO of Q-Control, which is the shining star of quantum computing in Australia, spun out of the University of Sydney. Now they have their own offices over in Piermont. They just raised a $23 million Series A round with Square Pay Capital, Main Sequence, Sierra Ventures. So far, so good. But as, as he was quoted in the AFR, we're now learning that the Australian government might want to ban the export of quantum computing technologies as strategic technologies, basically that they're going to be classified as what are called sovereign capabilities. It's roughly saying that it's a weapon and you can't export it. Now, quantum computing, we have to admit, it can be used to crack cryptography. So that can be a secure document that you can now read or transmission in the secure web that can be cracked. So there's a reasonable argument to make about the threat that it possesses at some point in the future. And no one knows whether it's years away or decades away. Is this the way to work it, though? Because... Look at he, Mike Bersick said all of my clients are located in the U.S. and it's IBM, it's probably the Department of Defense. Who knows? So he's like, do I have to move my entire business over to America to avoid export restrictions? His big concern is that Australia is moving unilaterally, that it's moving ahead of any mm. of the international frameworks that are being created. Are we seeing now a new kind of sovereign risk? I mean, Andrea. Have we even seen this kind of thing before where government's basically saying this entire branch of technology is now a sovereign capability and I'm sorry? I think this is a first. I might be wrong. Um, I, my, my concern about this, and I think it's a really serious, potentially a really serious issue, is if we've got um, companies building this really unique technology that there are defence concerns about, then... Sure, the government needs to take some responsibility for balancing protecting our defence interests with our economic interests. But the new startups like this are an ab- absolutely a critical economic imperative for the economic future of our children. So I think it, a responsible government will see it as incumbent on them to work very closely with people like you know, Mike Bearsuck and people who understand this and the potential ramifications far more deeply than, you know, anyone else and work very closely with them to, and even if it's just a monitoring thing for a while, but work closely with them to make sure that those, the defence and the economic interests are balanced, that we're not actually being so ham-fisted that we're frightening great startups. And, 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 and sending them overseas. Strangling them, yeah. And, and, and to benefit economic, to, for the economic benefit of other countries. We will be a, a dead duck in the water by the time our kids are adults if we, 
if we behave in such an uninformed and knee-jerk yeah. way. And it's it's interesting because on the other podcast that I do, The Next Billion Seconds, I had two of Mike's postdocs, these amazing women who are doing fundamental work in quantum computing, all right? And this is the thing. And they're now doing work for him at Q-Control. So they, they, started, they did their PhD and now they're taking their PhD research out. And this is exactly what we need to be seeing, right? This is, a, you know, you give them a research focus and then you can give them a commercial focus that's following out of their research, which keeps them being leaders in quantum computing. That's like, that's ticking every possible box of what we want in Absolutely. the economy. What kind of disconnect, Maxine, are we seeing that's allowing, is it the ASD, is it the defense who are going, oh, my God, this is big, it's scary, and there are ways to look at it in which that's absolutely true, but that then undermines the national economic interest? Um, I'm just gobsmacked by this. It reminds me so much of the AA bill, which, uh, you know, yeah. now it's in the past. And the question I have to ask, and hopefully it's not too glib, but why are we such pioneers at the wrong things? <laughs> That's a good question. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we would love to celebrate the government being the first at doing something, yeah. um, not these things, I'm afraid to say. Yeah. And it's and, a, oh, sorry, I was just dumb. thinking, and it's, and it's completely bizarre that the government um, shows off Michelle, um, you know, the, the heads up the big quantum computing yeah. mm. research facility at UNSW. They've attracted, I can't remember, but many tens and probably hundreds of millions of funding. Pione as you say, they're pioneers. They're world leading yeah. the research on the silicon chip version. And um, I don't know whether it's a chip. It's not a chip, but it's a silicon <laughs> something. I must admit, quantum computing does um, evade my deep understanding, that's for sure. But we're investing this because we know that the economic, um, potential economic benefits are huge. And if we're starting to see the commercialisation of some of this technology and we're going to be smacking it down and scaring them overseas, oh, my God, we need a change of government. Well, it, I mean, it also Again? means that anyone else who's thinking about starting a quantum computing company mm -hmm. now knows what they can expect yeah. Right. That they're going to hear two stories, one of which is that you're bringing both jobs and talent into the country, but another one of which is you're creating essentially a case of sovereign risk. Yeah. All right. We're going to break for just a moment. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia News Special. We will be right back. Are you a small business or small e-tailer looking for better ways to streamline costs and improve efficiency? Introducing SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes, the complete office sending solution that makes it easy for small businesses and e-tailers to consistently choose the right sending option for each parcel or letter. SendPro Plus provides shipping options and prices, prints labels and tracks parcels, and integrated accurate scale helps assign the correct parcel label or postage. SendPro Plus makes sending simple with automatic rate updates and a shared address book across available carriers. Pitney Bowes brings shipping, mailing, and tracking capabilities to businesses looking to simplify their shipping and mailing while reducing costs. Simplify and save with SendPro Plus today and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. To learn more, visit pitneybowes.com au slash twista.
Welcome back to our final news special on Series 7 of This Week in Startups Australia. We're here with Gelix Capital's Andrea Gardner and Maxine Sharon of Spark Festival, which brings us to topic four, Spark Festival 2019. What number Spark Festival is this? Is it the fifth? This will be, no, well, technically it's the fourth Spark Festival. The five comes into it. A lot of people are still attached to that startup week that happened yes. way back in 2015. I wasn't involved in that, so in my numbers, I'm not going to count that. All right. Okay. So coming up, and what are the dates now? It's October 10 to 27. All right. So just less than a month from now. Yes, indeed. We'll be in the thick of it pretty much in four weeks' time, I believe. Um, and there will be 100 plus events all across right. New South Wales, many of them in this building where we are right now, the Sydney Startup Hub, many of them across um, metropol central Sydney, metropolitan Sydney, and right throughout New South Wales. I need to check in on my connections in Bingara. Who are running? Where is Bingara? Everyone says that Bingara is two hours north of Damworth, little little wow. tiny oh. place. Okay. And um, yeah, funny. I have a family connection to there, so I was quite delighted to see something um, come up for Bingara. But we have so much going on. Um, can I start waxing lyrical Please. about the program? Um, one of the things I'm personally really excited about is an event called Find My Spark. That's all about um, high school entrepreneur entrepreneurial thinking and mindset for high school age students. We're going to have 320 kids from public schools in South and Western Sydney, dividing them up into 16 groups of 20 in each group for a full day of design thinking workshops that are done in combination with a design thinking facilitator, as well as a young entrepreneur um, who's got a startup that you can clearly state what problem they're solving. And so the kids will get to go through three different you know, projects throughout that day. Really excited about that one. Uh, we've got a Feast of Strangers, which everyone seems... I'm sorry? A Feast of Strangers, Mark. Now, Feast of Strangers is it's, it's kind of a global phenomenon that's all about helping people connect who might not otherwise have connected. The idea is that you sit down for a two-hour conversation over dinner with a stranger. But what makes it easier and better in many ways is there's a menu of conversation that has been set out by the um, organisers of the event. And the, the, the purpose of it is to help you get get beyond trivialities really, really quickly and get to the deeper stuff. This is being run in collaboration with Catalyzer as well. So it will also have that sort of global theme mm -hmm. to it. Really excited about that one. We've got a new business shower, which I think is an intriguing <laughs> idea. Um, being Do I have to bring a present to the new business shower? I don't know, but it all started from a conversation with Sarah Nelson, who used to be at Sydney School of Entrepreneurship. And she was saying that it seems unfair that we acknowledge, you know, the bringing of a child into the world, but who really acknowledges the bringing of a new business into the world? In your, the your accountant. Your accountant <laughs> acknowledges it. <laughs> it's not quite the same though, is it? There's no cake and no champagne. Anyway, this is actually being supported by New South Wales Parliament. Um, the Minister for Small Business will be there. And it'll be people, you know, fresh out of um, accelerator programs and stuff mm -hmm. like that, just honouring that that small victory that you've got to that point. And sure, you've still got a mountain to climb, mm -hmm. but you're in it together with a whole bunch of other people. Uh, so much on the program. Cryptopia, a film, an um, Australian documentary about uh, cryptocurrency, blockchain and the future of the internet. Uh, C to Series B, as I've mentioned, that's our... Um, uh, helping uh, scale-ups get better at their job. 
And one more that I'm especially excited about is oh, that we've got the George Institute for Global Health on the program. Now, you've got the exact same look on your face, Mark, as I did when they put forward a submission, but it's actually really interesting because they are bringing together traditional medical research with what we call innovation and more importantly, social enterprise. So they've got one of their researchers, for example, who's developing a portable um, dialysis machine, right? But this research has a social entrepreneurship aspect to it. And so they're wanting to integrate more fully into the Sydney and New South Wales startup scene. So, so this is similar than some of the things that I saw from the UN where they would have the portable retinal eye camera that people could take around and could then be used for diagnoses in the, in the developing world. Okay, so it's yeah. that kind of stuff. All yeah, right. totally. And if you've ever known anyone who's had to go through dialysis, yeah. Oh, yeah, you want a portable dialysis machine to be invented. So. Well, particularly, I mean, r- rural and regional Australia, Absolutely. right? It's, yeah. That's just a huge thing right there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Lots and, and lots going on. So, okay, so it runs for now how many days? Did you... 17 days this year, which I hope is the sweet spot. A little bit more than last year. People often come in, come to me and say, oh, it needs to be a month long so that we can have it spread out over more time. And I'm like, oh, my God, it would kill me and it would kill you to have it over that much time. So 17 days is a good number as far as I'm concerned, starting on October 10, all over October 27th. And people can find out all they want to know about Spark Festival where? At sparkfestival.co. Um, yeah, you can find out all about the festival, all about the events that are online, register. Many of them are free. Many of them are a small price. Um, all of them totally worth your time and money. Wow. So if you were designing your own program for the Spark Festival, Andrea, what would you add in? What would you like to see? I think actually... One thing that is missing um, and that I think our sort of startup ecosystem could really benefit from is angel investor training, really. Sydney Angels are, have contributed for the last three years and they do one event in oh, this great. regard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I uh, yeah, awesome. totally agree. There should be more of that on the program because I think there's a lot, again, getting back to people working for those big tech companies as well. Slowly, slowly, they start to have little bits of money that they want to reinvest back into tech. But where do you even start with learning how to do that? And yeah. learning how to do it in the Australian context would be wonderful as well. I'm sure there's no shortage of YouTube videos to tell you how to do it, but a bit of local knowledge on that. Yeah, yeah. Totally and there agree. are there are you know, definite tweaks for Australia. Yeah, there would be. All right. Topic five. So the value of Telstra right now is somewhere around, I think, 40 billion Australian dollars. That's the market capitalization. Atlassian... Australia's favourite unicorn had a very good quarter. They had $1.6 billion in revenue. That was US, up 30% year on year, 37%. And briefly, they had a valuation of over $50 billion Australian. They now have a valuation, I just checked, $45 billion Australian, which is, again, Atlassian is now worth more than Telstra. And I don't think that's really sunk in to people around what's going on here. Now, 
Andrea, first, is there a limit? Could we reasonably expect to see Atlassian grow by a factor of five? So basically up to a quarter trillion Australian dollars. Will we see a time when they're the most valuable company in Australia? Look, I think um, absolutely. But I, I suppose I think that, you know, Mike and Scott have been, you know, they are the beating heart of Atlassian yes. and they have managed this extraordinary feat of building an extraordinarily healthy culture, yes. um, which I think has had a made a significant contribution to the health and growth of their company and their business. I would guess that, you know, okay, the size of the market is a limiter, I don't know where that sits. I'm not, I don't really understand the size of their market. But um, if you're going 37% other, right now, that means there's probably still a little bit more room left. I would guess there's a lot more room yeah. left. I, I Look, these guys are extraordinary. You know, they're an extraordinary team that have built an extraordinary company. Um, and I I don't think there's much, <laughs> there's much that limits what they can do. They've already proved what they can do in an incredibly short period of time. I suppose one of the limiters... I think the main limiter might be, um, given that they are the beating heart of the company, will, when and if they'll, will they ever run out of steam? Will mm. they want to invest their efforts in other things? I mean, Mike is a wonderful um, champion for renewable energies. Energy uh, Got a battery into South Australia with a tweet to I Elon know. Musk. I mean, come I on. Know. What a hero. With... What yeah. a true leader. Yeah. Um, so, you know, who knows what the, where they want to get going, going to want to invest their personal energies and focus mm. their personal energies going forward. So are we thinking then that the growth curve that they're on would not survive a leadership transition? Is it so embedded in them? I personally, I'd be surprised if anyone else could do the job they've done. Well, keep the growth at the same rate. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, you know, there's probably other people out there yeah. I mean, that Maxine, can do a competent job. We knew but... them when, right? Both oh, of them. I know, when they were young whippersnappers. Well, they were young whippersnappers who were still incredibly clear and focused, yeah, right? Definitely. And, and I haven't have seen been. any of that gone away. If it is possible for Australia to produce a company that's similar in size to a Google, a Facebook, a Microsoft, an Apple, and that's what you're talking about when you're at a quarter billion dollars, right? Combank, I think, is only worth about 90, and that's pretty much the top of the ASX. Mm -hmm. So it's only a factor of two from where they are now to be the biggest company in Australia, which is just, I know, I know, but but here we are. Mm. And it's easy to see them growing by a factor of two. Maybe it'll take them a couple of years. But then after that, they're in truly international territory. Will that change the story that we're telling ourselves? Will that change some of the stories we're telling ourselves at Spark Festival? That it's not just this little thing on the side, but in fact, actually the biggest company in the country is, is a, a startup. It's a startup. A tech startup. It's a tech yeah. startup. Yeah, totally. Look, I welcome that day. And as long as the government can stop putting the brakes on innovation, we might actually get there at some point. Um, will we get there soon? I don't know. Um, look, it'd be great to see that. And I think a long time ago, um, Atlassian, you know, didn't really, it, it, it sort of sets the standard of startup behaviour in Australia, but we all kind of recognise that they're not really a startup anymore. Right. Right. No, um, no, no. They're a full grown decade old plus absolutely, business. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, would they survive 
a leadership transition, I kind of feel they're big enough that they would. You know, they've, they've set in, those guys, like I've listened to them speak about what they've done within the company. In terms of culture. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's all embedded yeah. now. And okay, there are no shortage of stories of people, you know, the culture does change when they move on. But I think they've done a, a marvellous job of that. So it's all I good. actually think they've also, um, well, one, will it, will it survive a leadership? Would it survive? I'm sure it would. It's so big. It's got yeah. that you know, reach that critical mass that I'm sure it'd survive. Whether it would grow as rapidly, I yeah, would and keep think the that same would culture. be unlikely. Yeah. Hopefully the culture is well enough embedded that that would be fairly um, robust as well. Mm. But one of the things I'd like to call out is that I actually think we've been lucky that we've had um, awesome people like Mike Hannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar, who are not only seriously clever business people and have scaled a company in the most extraordinary way. Um, but they're people with really good values. They're lovely human oh, beings. And right. they, yeah. You yeah. know, and I think our ecosystem in Australia is wonderful. And one of the, I mean, the, the really wonderful part of it is this sort of gratuitous generosity. I can't tell you how many people that, you know, the sort of top VCs, like Daniel Petrie and um, Rick Baker and Michelle Deeker, I can pick up the phone any time and, and ask a question and they've just been so generous. And I think that people like them, uh, together with Scott and Mike and, um, oh, forgotten, you know, the Canva people mm. and Safety right. Cult, you know, these people have actually helped set from the top mm. a really good culture mm of our ecosystem. People work together. People are very generous about helping each other. And I think that's lovely. Yeah. I think that, and I think it's immensely valuable. And so Absolutely. that means that as soon as Atlassian does get to global scale, it will be clear that nice guys can win globally. All right, Andrea, Maxine, thank you so much for your insights. You've been listening to Twist the News Special. We will be right back with some final thoughts. Developing entrepreneurial skills is at the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. UTS students are creating their own jobs and starting their own companies through the flagship program, UTS Startups. Within its first year, the program has launched more than 200 student startups, and they're just getting started. Equipping students with the tools and expertise to become entrepreneurs, then connecting them to industry partners and the startup ecosystem, it's all part of their innovative approach. UTS is connecting thousands of talented students to industry and works closely with a network of partners to match students and startups through their startup internship program. As a leading university of technology and Australia's number one young university, UTS is investing heavily in this future right now. UTS's inner city campus is also uniquely positioned in Sydney's thriving tech precinct to be the catalyst for digital and creative industries and the startup community. Join them on the journey building Australia's largest community of student entrepreneurs. Go to startups.uts.edu.au to find out more.
One thing that was very clear in the first three stories is the great influence that correctly crafted government policy can have on startups, particularly early stage startups, like a startup like Q Control, which is doing groundbreaking work, but might basically be wiped out by a change in the way the government thinks about what quantum computing is and its value to the nation as a strategic asset. Or what the definition of revenue for an early stage startup might be for a venture capital fund or whether we'll have access to global talent. And when you take a look at all of these pieces and these are decisions that are made carefully by bureaucrats. They aren't made randomly. They aren't made arbitrarily. They're made with a consideration around a specific set of questions. But they lack, in some sense, a broader apprehension of the whole, of how this will have systemic effects on an ecosystem of startups, on the Australian economy, on the Australian ability to innovate in science and technology. And I think that this is part of where the bureaucrats now need to start working. They need to be able to think systemically around this. So they're not just trying to solve this problem about avoiding people cheating on their tax when they're doing an investment or whatever it might be, or this program is so special that it can really only be applied to these five companies and the other ones. Well, they'll never even hear about it. Because if we start to think in that narrower term, what happens is that becomes a cycle of thinking that basically just closes down opportunity. We need to be thinking about opening up the pipes, to open up the pipes to capital investment, open up the pipes to the inflow of human capital coming into this country. Because even if it leaves the country again, what it leaves behind is valuable. Big thanks to Twister sponsors, UTS Startups and Pitney Bowes. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Wynyard Green for providing the amazing facility where we record this week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech. Find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks to Andrea Gardner and Maxine Sharon for taking the time to come onto our show. Now, last year, we rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows. All the interviews, all the photos, all the links to all the stories. So check it out at TWIstartupsAUS.com. We'll be back in a fortnight taking a look at another new and rapidly scaling creative tech startup. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. Startups Australia.